93, Part 1, Book 4, Telmark. The old man let Helmolo disappear, then wrapped his sea cloak tightly around himself and began walking. He walked slowly, thoughtfully. He headed toward Huin, while Helmolo was going toward Beauvoir. Behind him, with a cathedral for a tiara and a fortress for a breastplate, with its two big eastern towers, one round, the other square, which helped to bear the weight of the church and the village, rose the enormous black triangle of Mont Saint-Michel, which is to the ocean what the Pyramid of Cheops is to the desert. The quicksands of Mont Saint-Michel Bay are constantly, though imperceptibly, shifting their dunes. At that time, between Huin and Ardavon, there was a very high dune which has since vanished. This dune, later leveled by an equinoctial gale, had the rare distinction of being very old. On its top stood a stone monument, erected in the twelfth century in commemoration of the council held at Avranches against the murderers of St. Thomas of Canterbury. From the top of this dune one could see the whole countryside and get one's bearings. The old man walked to the dune and climbed it. When he reached the top, he sat down on one of the four corner markers of the monument, leaned his back against the stone, and began examining the kind of map that was spread out below him. He seemed to be seeking a route in the region with which he was familiar. In that vast landscape, blurred because of the twilight, nothing was precise except the horizon, black against the white sky. He could see the clustered roofs of eleven towns and villages. For a distance of several leagues he could distinguish all the steeples along the coast, which were very high, so that they could serve as landmarks for vessels at sea, when necessary. After a short time the old man seemed to have found what he was seeking in that mixture of light and shadow. His eyes rested on an enclosure of trees, walls, and roofs, which was more or less visible in the middle of the plain and the woods, and which was a farm. He nodded his head in the satisfied way of a man who says to himself, There it is. Then he began to move his finger, tracing a route through the fields and hedges. Occasionally he examined a shapeless, indistinct object that was moving above the main roof of the farm, and he seemed to ask himself, What's that? It was colorless and obscure because of the hour. It was not a weather vane, because it was floating, and there was no reason why it should be a flag. He was tired. He was glad to remain sitting on that stone, and he yielded to that kind of vague forgetfulness which the first minute of rest gives to weary men. There is an hour of the day which might be called the absence of noise. It is the serene hour, the hour of evening. That hour had now come. He enjoyed it. He looked. He listened. To what? To the tranquility around him. Even fierce men have their moments of melancholy. Suddenly that tranquility was not troubled, but accentuated by the sound of passing voices. The voices of women and children. One sometimes hears such unexpected peals of joy in the shadows. The underbrush prevented him from seeing the group from which the voices were coming, but it was moving at the foot of the dune, toward the plain and the forest. The voices rose clear and fresh to the thoughtful old man. They were so close that he missed nothing of what they were saying. "'Let's hurry, Fleshard,' said a woman. "'Is it this way?' "'No, it's that way.' And the dialogue continued between these two voices, one loud, the other timid. What's the name of that farm we're staying at now? L'Herbonpaille. Will we be there soon? Another quarter of an hour. Let's hurry to get our soup. Yes, we're late. We ought to run, but your children are tired. We're only two women. We can't carry three children. And you're already carrying one of them, Fleshard. She's like a piece of lead. You've weaned her, the glutton, but you're still carrying her. It's a bad habit. Make her walk. Never mind, let the soup get cold. Ah, what good shoes you've given me. They feel as if they were made for me. It's better than going barefoot. Hurry up, René Jean. He's the one who made us late. 
He has to talk to every little peasant girl he sees. He's acting like a man already. Well, he'll soon be five years old. Tell me, Rene Jean, why did you talk to that little girl in the village? A boy's voice answered, Because I know her. What? said the woman. You know her? Yes, replied the little boy. She gave me some bugs this morning. He's amazing, exclaimed the woman. We've only been here three days. He's no bigger than my fist, and he has a sweetheart already. The voices moved further and further away until all was silent again. The old man sat still. He was not thinking. His mind was almost completely empty. Around him all was serenity, drowsiness, confidence, and solitude. It was still daylight on the dune, but nearly night on the plain, and completely dark in the woods. The moon was rising in the east. A few stars were twinkling in the pale blue sky overhead. Although filled with violent preoccupations, the old man sank into the ineffable gentleness of the infinite. He felt the dark dawn of hope rising within him, if the word hope can be applied to the expectations of civil war. For the moment, it seemed to him that all danger had vanished when he had set foot on land after leaving the inexorable sea. No one knew his name. He was alone. He had escaped from the enemy without leaving a trace behind him, for the surface of the sea keeps nothing. He was hidden, unknown, not even suspected. He felt a kind of supreme calm. A little more, and he would have fallen asleep. For that man, agitated by so many inner as well as outer tumults, what gave that hour a strange charm was the deep silence which reigned on earth and in the sky. He heard nothing but the wind from the sea. But the wind is a figured bass, and one becomes so accustomed to it that it almost ceases to be a sound. Suddenly he stood up. His attention had just been abruptly awakened. He looked at the horizon. Something gave his gaze a peculiar steadiness. His eyes were fixed on the belfry of Cormoray, which was before him at the far end of the plain. Something extraordinary was taking place in that belfry. Its outline stood out clearly. He could see the tower surmounted by a pyramid, and between the tower and the pyramid the square bell cage, without louver boards, open on all four sides, as is usual with Breton belfries. Now this cage appeared alternately open and closed, at regular intervals. Its tall window showed first white, then black. One moment the sky could be seen through it, the next moment it could not. There was light, then darkness, and the opening and closing succeeded each other with the regularity of a hammer striking an anvil. This belfry of Cormoray was about two leagues in front of the old man. He looked to his right at the belfry of Baguet Picon, which also rose straight up on the horizon. Its cage was opening and closing, like that of the belfry of Cormoray. He looked to his left at the belfry of Tani. Its cage was opening and closing like that of the belfry of Baguet Picon. He looked at all the belfries on the horizon, one after the other. To his left, the belfries of Corti, Presse, Croyant, and croix avranchin To his right, those of Raz sur Coinon, Mordray, and Les Pas. Before him, the belfry of Pontorson. The cages of all these belfries were alternately black and white. What did this mean? It meant that all the bells were ringing. In order to appear and disappear like that, they must be ringing violently. What was it? The toxin, obviously. The toxin was being rung frenziedly everywhere, in all the belfries, in all the parishes, in all the villages yet he heard nothing. This was because of the distance, and because the sea wind was blowing all sounds on land away from him. Nothing could have been more sinister than that silence while all those frantic bells were calling out on all sides. The old man looked and listened. He could not hear the toxin, but he could see it. It was a strange sensation to see a toxin. With whom were these bells angry? Against whom 
was that toxin directed. Someone was surely being hunted. Who? That man of steel shivered. It could not be he. No one could have guessed his arrival. It was impossible that any of the special agents should have been informed already. He had scarcely landed. The corvette had no doubt been sunk without a single survivor. And even among those on the corvette, only Boisberthelot and La Vieuville had known his name. The bells were still ringing fiercely. He watched them, unthinkingly counting them, and his mind, driven from one conjecture to another, was a prey to those fluctuations which are caused by a change from a deep feeling of security to a terrible uncertainty. After all, however, that toxin could be explained in many ways. He finally reassured himself by inwardly repeating, In short, no one knows of my arrival, and no one knows my name. For some time there had been a slight noise above and behind him. It was like the sound of a fluttering leaf. At first he paid no attention to it. Then, since it persisted, and might even be said to have insisted, he finally turned around. The noise was being made by a sheet of paper. Above his head the wind was gradually loosening a broad poster that had been pasted to the monument. This poster had been there only a short time, for it was still damp, and it offered a hold to the wind, which was playing with it and detaching it. The old man had climbed the dune from the opposite side and had not seen this poster when he arrived. He stood on the stone on which he had been sitting and put his hand on the corner of the poster which the wind was lifting. The sky was clear. Twilight is long in June. The bottom of the dune was shadowy, but the top was light. Part of the poster was printed in big letters, and there was still enough light to make them legible. He read this. French Republic, one and indivisible. We, Prieur de la Marne, representative of the people on detached service with the army of the Côte de Cherbourg, hereby decree that the former Marquis de Lantenac, Vicomte de Fontenay, is henceforth an outlaw. A price is set on his head. Anyone who captures him, dead or alive, will be paid the sum of sixty thousand francs. This sum will be paid in gold, not in assignats. A battalion of the army of the Côte de Cherbourg will immediately be sent to seek and apprehend the former Marquis de Lantenac. The communes are required to give assistance. Enacted at the town hall of Granville, June 2, 1793. Signed, Prieur de la Marne. Below this name there was another signature, written in much smaller letters, which could not be read because of the fading light. The old man pulled his hat over his eyes, crossed his sea-cape under his chin, and quickly walked down the dune. There was obviously no point in remaining on that lighted summit any longer. He had perhaps been there too long already. The top of the dune was the only part of the landscape that was still visible. When he was at the bottom and in darkness, he slowed his pace. He set out on the route he had traced for himself to the farm probably having reason to believe he would be safe in that direction. Everything was deserted. It was the hour when there were no more passers-by. He stopped behind some underbrush, unfastened his cloak, turned his jacket so that the furry side was out, tied the cord of his ragged cloak around his neck again, and continued on his way. The moon was shining. He came to a junction of two roads where there was an old stone cross. On the pedestal of the cross he could see a white square, which was no doubt a poster like the one he had just read. He walked toward it. "'Where are you going?' said a voice. He turned around. A man was there in the hedges, tall like himself, old and white-haired like himself, and dressed in even shabbier clothes, almost his double. The man was leaning on a long stick. "'I asked you where you're going.' First of all, where am I? he said, with almost haughty calm. You're in the seigneury of Tani, replied the man. I'm its beggar, and you're its lord. I? Yes, you, Marquis de Lantenac. The Marquis de Lantenac, we shall henceforth call him by his name, replied gravely, 
"'So be it. Turn me in,' the man continued. "'We're both at home here, you in the castle, I in the bushes.' "'Let's finish,' said the Marquis. "'Go on. Turn me in.' "'You were going to the farm of Urban Pie, weren't you?' asked the man. "'Yes. Don't go there.' "'Why not?' "'Because the blues are there. "'When did they arrive?' Three days ago.' Did the people of the farm and the hamlet resist? No, they opened all the gates. Ah, said the Marquis. The man pointed to the roof of the farmhouse, which could be seen above the trees some distance away. Do you see that roof, Marquis? Yes. Do you see what's above it? Do you mean that thing that's waving there? Yes. It's a flag. It's the tricolor, said the man. This was the object which had already attracted the Marquis's attention when he was at the top of the dune. "'Aren't they ringing the tocsin?' asked the Marquis. "'Yes. Because of what? Because of you, naturally. But I don't hear it. That's because of the wind. Have you seen your poster?' "'Yes. They're looking for you.' And casting a glance toward the farm, he added, "'There's half a battalion there. Republicans?' Parisians. Well, said the Marquis, let's go. And he took a step toward the farm. The man gripped his arm. Don't go there. Where do you expect me to go? To my home. The Marquis looked at the beggar. Listen, Marquis, my home isn't very pretty, but it's safe. It's a hut that's lower than a cellar. The floor is a layer of seaweed. The ceiling is a roof of branches and grass. Come. At the farm you'd be shot. In my hut you'll sleep. You must be tired. Tomorrow the blues will march on, and you can go wherever you please. The Marquis examined him. Which side are you on? he asked. Are you a Republican? Are you a Royalist? I'm a poor man. Neither Royalist nor Republican? I don't think so. Are you for or against the King? I don't have time for that. What do you think of what's happening? I have nothing to live on. And yet you've come to my aid. I saw that you'd been declared an outlaw. What is the law? Apparently a man can be outside it. I don't understand. As for me, am I in the law? Am I outside it? I don't know. Does dying of hunger mean being in the law? How long have you been dying of hunger? All my life. And you're saving me? Yes. Why? Because I said to myself, there's a man who's even poorer than I am. I have a right to breathe, and he doesn't. That's true. And you're saving me? Of course. We're now brothers, my lord. I ask for bread, you ask for life. We're both beggars. But do you know there's a price on my head? Yes. How do you know? I read the poster. You know how to read? Yes, and how to write, too. Why should I be a brute? Then, since you know how to read, and since you've read the poster, you must know that any man who turns me in will receive sixty thousand francs. I do. Not in Ossignats. Yes, I know. In gold. Do you know that sixty thousand francs is a fortune? Yes. And that anyone who turned me in would make his fortune? Well, his fortune! That's exactly what I thought. When I saw you, I said to myself, Think of it. Anyone who turns in that man will receive sixty thousand francs and make his fortune. I'd better hide him quickly. The Marquis went with the pauper. They entered a thicket. The beggar's den was there. It was a kind of room which a big old oak had allowed him to take over as his own. It was hollowed out under the roots of the tree and covered with its branches. It was dark, low, hidden, and invisible. There was room enough for two. I foresaw that I might have a guest, said the beggar. This kind of underground lodging, less rare in Brittany than one might think, is called a carnichot in the peasant language. This name is also given to hiding places made inside thick walls. These huts are furnished with a few pots, a pallet of straw, and washed or dried seaweed, 
a coarse woolen blanket, and a few tallow dips with a tinderbox and some hollow acanthus stems for matches. The two men bent down, crawled a little, entered the room which the big roots of the tree divided into strange compartments, and sat down on the heap of dried seaweed that was the bed. A little light came in through the space between two roots, which served as a doorway. Night had come, but the eye adapts itself to whatever light is available, and eventually one is always able to see something in the shadows. Reflected moonlight gave a vague white glow to the doorway. In one corner there were some chestnuts, a loaf of buckwheat bread, and a jug of water. "'Let's have supper,' said the pauper. They shared the chestnuts. The Marquis gave his biscuit. They bit into the same round black loaf and drank from the jug, one after the other. They talked. The Marquis began to question the beggar. "'So nothing of what's happening means anything to you. Is that right?' "'Pretty much.' Those are things that concern you and the other lords. But after all, what's happening? It's happening up there, the beggar added. And then there are things that happen even higher up. The sun rises, the moon waxes and wanes. Those are the things I concern myself with. He took a swallow from the jug and said, Good, cool water. How do you like this water, my lord? What's your name? asked the Marquis. My name is Telmark and I'm called the Caimond. I understand. Caimond is a local word. It means beggar. I'm also called the old man. I've been called that for the past forty years. Forty years? Why, you were young forty years ago. I was never young. But you're still young, Marquis. You have the legs of a man of twenty. You can climb the big dune. As for me, I don't do much walking any more. I'm tired after I've gone a quarter of a league and yet you and I are the same age. But rich people have one advantage over us. They eat every day. Eating keeps one in good condition. After a silence, the beggar continued, The rich, the poor, it's a terrible business. That's what causes catastrophes. At least that's how it seems to me. The poor want to be rich, the rich don't want to be poor. I think that's more or less the basis of it. I stay out of those things. What's going to happen will happen. I'm neither the creditor nor the debtor. I know there's a debt, and that it's being paid. That's all. I'd rather they hadn't killed the king, but it would be hard for me to say why. And then somebody will say, But remember how people used to be hanged from trees for nothing at all. I myself once saw a man with a wife and seven children hanged just because he shot one of the king's roebucks. There's something to be said on both sides." He was silent again. Then he added, I don't know exactly. People come and go. Things happen. And I'm here, under the stars. He lapsed into a reverie. I'm something of a bone-setter, and something of a doctor, he went on after a time. I know herbs. I make use of plants. The peasants see me attentive in front of nothing, and that gives me the reputation of being a sorcerer. Because I daydream, they think I know. "'Are you from this region?' asked the Marquis. "'I've never left it. "'Do you know me?' "'Of course. "'The last time I saw you was when you passed through here two years ago. "'You went from here to England. "'A little while ago I saw a man on top of the dune, a tall man. "'Tall men are rare here. "'Brittany is a country of short men. "'I looked carefully. "'I'd read the poster. "'Well, well,' I said to myself. "'When you came down?' I recognized you in the moonlight. And yet I don't know you. You looked at me, but without seeing me. And Telmark the beggar added, I saw you. A beggar looks at a passerby in a different way. Had I encountered you before? Often, because I'm your beggar. I was the poor man at the foot of the road to your castle. You occasionally gave me alms, but the man who gives doesn't even look, whereas the man who receives examines, and observes. A beggar is a spy. But although I'm often sad, I try not to be a bad spy. I used to hold out my hand. You saw only the hand, and you dropped into it the alms I needed in the morning in order not to die of hunger that night. We sometimes go twenty-four hours without eating. Sometimes a sou means life. I owe my life to you. I'm paying the debt. 
It's true. You're saving me. Yes, I'm saving you, my lord. Telmark's voice became lower. On one condition. What is it? That you haven't come here to do evil. I've come here to do good, said the Marquis. Let's go to sleep, said the beggar. They lay down side by side on the seaweed bed. The beggar fell asleep immediately. Although he was very tired, the Marquis sat up for a moment, thoughtfully, then looked at the beggar and lay back down. On that bed, lying down meant lying on the ground. He took advantage of this to put his ear to the ground and listen. There was a dull throbbing in the earth. As is well known, sound spreads into the depths of the earth. He was hearing the bells. The tocsin was still ringing. He fell asleep. When he awoke, it was daylight. The beggar was standing, not in his den, for it was impossible to stand up in it, but outside on the threshold. He was leaning on his stick. The sun was shining on his face. My lord, said Telmark, the belfry of Tani has just sounded four o'clock. I was able to hear it, so the wind has changed. It's now coming from land. I heard no other sound, so the tocsin has stopped. Everything is quiet on the farm and in the hamlet of Herbampai. The blues are asleep or gone. The worst of the danger is over. It will be wise for us to part. This is the time when I usually leave. He pointed his finger. I'll go that way. He pointed in the opposite direction. And you'll go that way. The beggar solemnly saluted the Marquis with his hand. Indicating the remains of the supper, he added, Take some chestnuts if you're hungry. A moment later, he had disappeared beneath the trees. The Marquis stood up and went off in the direction Telmark had indicated to him. It was the charming hour which the old Norman peasant language calls the piperette du jour. The Marquis could hear the goldfinches and sparrows twittering. He followed the path along which he and the beggar had come the night before. He came out of the thicket and found himself at the fork in the road marked by the stone cross. The poster was there, white and almost gay in the rising sun. He remembered that there was something at the bottom of the poster which he had not been able to read the day before because of the smallness of the letters and the dimness of the light. He went over to the pedestal of the cross. Under the signature Prieur de la Marne there were these two lines in small letters. As soon as the identity of the former Marquis de Lantenac has been ascertained, he will be immediately shot. Signed, Major in Command of the Expeditionary Force, Govan. Govan, said the Marquis. He stood still, deeply thoughtful, staring at the poster. Govan, he repeated. He took a few steps, turned around, looked at the cross, went back and read the poster again. Then he slowly walked away. Anyone near him would have heard him murmur softly, Govan. From the rutted paths along which he glided, he could not see the rooftops of the farm which now lay to his left. He skirted a steep hill covered with blossoming firs of the species known as longthorned. This hill was topped by one of those points of earth called a head in Brittany. At its foot, one's gaze immediately became lost beneath the trees. The leaves were as though soaked in light. All nature had the deep joy of mourning. Suddenly this landscape became terrible. It was like an ambush. A whirlwind composed of gunshots and savage cries swooped down upon those sunny fields and woods, and in the direction of the farm a vast pillar of smoke and bright flame arose as if the hamlet and the farm were burning a bundle of straw. It was sudden and fearful, an abrupt passage from calm to fury, an explosion of hell in the midst of dawn, a horror without transition. There was fighting in the direction of Herbampai. The Marquis stopped. There is no one who, in a similar case, has not experienced that curiosity is stronger than danger. One wants to know, even at the cost of one's life. The Marquis climbed the hill at the foot of which the rutted path ran. From there he might be seen, but he would be able to see. He reached the head in a few minutes. 
he looked. There was indeed shooting and fire. He could hear outcries and see flames. The farm was apparently the center of a catastrophe. What was it? Was the farm of Erbampaya being attacked? But by whom? Was it a battle? Was it not, rather, a military execution? In obedience to a revolutionary decree, the Blues often punished refractory farms and villages by setting fire to them. To make an example, they burned any farm or hamlet which had not felled as many trees as prescribed by law and had not cut a passage through the thickets for the Republican cavalry. Quite recently they had thus punished the parish of Bourgogne, near Ernay. Was the same punishment being given to Erbampai? It was obvious that none of the passages demanded by the decree had been cut through the thickets and fences of Tani and Erbampai. Was this a punishment? Had an order been sent to the vanguard occupying the farm? Was not that vanguard part of one of those expeditionary forces that were known as infernal forces? A wild, bristling thicket surrounded the hill at the top of which the Marquis was standing as a lookout. This thicket, which was called the Copse of Erbampai, but which had the size of a wood, extended all the way to the farm, and concealed, like all Breton thickets, a network of ravines, paths, and sunken roads, labyrinths in which the Republican armies became lost. The execution, if that was what it was, must have been ferocious, for it was short. Like all brutal things, it was done quickly. The savagery of civil war gives rise to such atrocities. While the Marquis listened and watched, lost in conjectures, and unable to decide whether to go or to stay, this uproar of extermination ceased, or, to speak more accurately, was dispersed. He became aware of what seemed to be the scattering of a wild, joyous troop through the woods. There was a frightful swarming beneath the trees. People were rushing into the woods from the farm. Drums were beating. There was no more shooting. It was now as though a hunt were in progress. The people seemed to be searching, pursuing, tracking. It was obvious that they were looking for someone. The noise was diffused and deep, a confusion of angry and triumphant words, a clamor of unintelligible cries. Suddenly, like an outline emerging from a cloud of smoke, something became articulate and distinct in that tumult. It was a name a name repeated by a thousand voices, and the Marquis clearly heard this cry. Lantanac! Lantanac! The Marquis de Lantanac! He was the man they were seeking. And suddenly, all around him, from all sides at once, the thicket was filled with muskets, bayonets, and sabres. A tricolored flag was raised in the shadows. The cry of Lantanac burst forth nearby, and below him, through the brambles and branches, violent faces appeared. The Marquis was alone, standing on top of a hill, visible from every part of the woods. He could scarcely see those who were shouting his name, but he was seen by all of them. If there were a thousand muskets in the woods, he was there like a target. He could see nothing in the thicket except burning eyes staring at him. He took off his hat, turned up its brim, pulled a long dry thorn from a furze bush, took a white cockade from his pocket, and used the thorn to fasten the cockade and the brim to the body of the hat. Then, putting on his hat, whose turned-up brim revealed his forehead and his cockade, he said loudly, speaking to the whole forest, I'm the man you're seeking. I'm the Marquis de Lantanac, Vicomte de Fontenay, Breton Prince, Lieutenant General in the armies of the King. Let's put an end to this. Aim your guns. Fire! And drawing aside his goatskin jacket with both hands, he exposed his bare chest. He looked down, expecting to see aimed guns, and saw that he was surrounded by kneeling men. An immense cry arose. Long live Lantanac! Long live the Marquis! Long live the General! At the same time, hats were thrown into the air, sabers were twirled joyfully, and sticks with brown woolen caps on their ends were raised all over the thicket. He was surrounded by a group of Vendeans. They had knelt as soon as they saw him. A legend states that in the old Thuringian forests there were strange beings, 
a race of giants, more and less than men, who were regarded by the Romans as horrible animals and by the Germans as divine incarnations, and who had a chance of being either killed or worshipped, according to whom they encountered. The Marquis felt something like what those beings must have felt when, expecting to be treated like a monster, he was suddenly treated like a god. All those eyes, filled with formidable lightning, were turned on him with a kind of savage love. That mob was armed with muskets, sabers, scythes, poles, and sticks. Everyone was wearing a big felt hat or a brown cap with a white cockade. There was a profusion of rosaries, amulets, wide breeches open at the knee, fur jackets, and leather gaiters. The backs of the men's legs were bare, and their hair was long. Some of them looked ferocious. All of them looked candid. A handsome young man passed through the kneeling crowd and swiftly walked up toward the Marquis. Like the peasants, he was wearing a fur jacket and a felt hat with a turned-up brim and a white cockade. But he had white hands and a fine shirt, and over his jacket he wore a white silk scarf from which hung a sword with a gold hilt. When he reached the top of the hill, he threw off his hat, unfastened his scarf, placed one knee on the ground, presented the scarf and sword to the Marquis, and said, We were indeed seeking you, and we have found you. Here is the sword of command. These men are now yours. I was their commander. I now have a higher rank. I am your soldier. Accept our homage, my lord. Give us your orders, General." He made a sign, and some men carrying a tricolored flag came out of the woods. These men climbed up to the Marquis and laid the flag at his feet. It was the flag he had glimpsed through the trees a short time before. "'General,' said the young man, who had given him the sword and scarf, "'this is the flag we just took from the Blues, who were in the farm of Erbampai. "'My lord, my name is Gavard. I was in the service of the Marquis de la Ruarie.' "'Very well,' said the Marquis. Calm and grave, he put on the scarf. Then he drew the sword. Waving it above his head, he cried out, "'Arise, and long live the king!' They all stood up. And from the depths of that forest a wild, triumphant clamor was heard. "'Long live the king! Long live our Marquis! Long live Lantanac!' The Marquis turned to Gavard. How many are you? Seven thousand. And as they were walking down the hill, while the peasants pushed aside the firs bushes in front of the Marquis de Lantanac, Gavard continued, My lord, nothing could be simpler. It can all be explained in a few words. Only a spark was needed. By revealing your presence, the Republic's poster made the whole region rise up in favor of the king. Furthermore, we were secretly notified by the mayor of Granville who's one of us. He's the man who saved the Abbe Olivier. Last night, the tocsin was sounded. For whom? For you. Ah, said the Marquis. And here we are, said Gavard. And your seven thousand? Today will be fifteen thousand tomorrow. That's all the available men in the region. When Monsieur Henri de la Roche-Jacqueline left for the Catholic army, the tocsin was sounded and in one night six parishes, Isernay, Corqueux, Les Echogrognes, Les Aubiers, Saint-Aubin, and Noy, gave him ten thousand men. They had no ammunition. Someone found sixty pounds of blasting powder in a mason's house, and Monsieur de la roche went off with that. We thought you must be somewhere in this forest, and we were looking for you. And you attacked the blues at the farm of Erbampai? The wind had prevented them from hearing the tocsin. They weren't on their guard. The people of the hamlet, who are Republicans, had given them a good reception. This morning we surrounded the farm. The blues were asleep, and it was all over in the twinkling of an eye. I have a horse. Will you deign to accept it, General? Yes. A peasant brought a militarily equipped white horse. The Marquis mounted it without the assistance that Gavard offered him. "'Hooray!' cried the peasants. English exclamations are commonly used along the Breton and Norman coast, which is in constant communication with the Channel Islands. Gavard saluted and asked, "'Where will your headquarters be, my lord?' 
at first in the Fougere forest. That's one of your seven forests, my lord. We'll need a priest. We have one. Who? The curate of the Chapelle Herbray. I know him. He made the voyage to Jersey. A priest stepped out of the ranks and said, Three times. The Marquis turned his head. Good morning, curate. You're going to have work to do. So much the better, Marquis. You'll have people to confess, those who want to. We won't force anyone. Marquis, said the priest, Gaston forces the Republicans to confess at Gaimenet. He's a hairdresser, said the Marquis. Death should be free. Gavard, who had gone off to give a few instructions, returned. I await your orders, General. First of all, the meeting place will be the Fougere Forest. Have the men disperse and go there. The order has been given. Didn't you tell me that the people of Erbampai had given the Blues a good reception? Yes, General. You've burned the farm? Yes. Have you burned the hamlet? No. Burn it. The Blues tried to defend themselves, but there were a hundred and fifty of them and seven thousand of us. Which Blues were they? Some of Santerre's. It was Santerre who ordered the drums to beat while the king's head was being cut off. It must be a Paris battalion. Half a battalion. What's its name? The flag bears the words, Red Bonnet Battalion. They're ferocious beasts. What shall we do with the wounded men? Kill them. What shall we do with the prisoners? Shoot them. There are about eighty of them. Shoot them all. There are two women. Shoot them too. There are three children. Take them with you. We'll decide what to do with them later. And the Marquis rode off. While this was taking place near Tani, the beggar had gone off toward Crolon. He plunged into the ravines, beneath the vast, silent foliage, inattentive to everything, and attentive to nothing, as he himself had said, dreamy rather than thoughtful, for the thoughtful man has a goal, and the dreamer has none, wandering, prowling, stopping, eating a shoot of wild sorrel here and there, drinking at springs, occasionally lifting his head to listen to a distant tumult, then falling back into the dazzling fascination of nature, offering his rags to the sun, hearing, perhaps, the sounds of men, but listening to the song of the birds. He was old and slow. He could not go far, as he had said to the Marquis de Lantenac, a quarter of a league tired him. He walked a short distance toward the Croix Avranchin, and evening had fallen when he turned back. A little beyond Marseille, the path he was following took him to a treeless height from which he had a vast view and could see westward all the way to the ocean. A column of smoke attracted his attention. Nothing can be gentler than smoke, and nothing can be more alarming. There is peaceful smoke and evil smoke. The thickness and color of smoke can mean the difference between peace and war, brotherhood and hatred, hospitality and the grave. Smoke rising through the trees may indicate the most charming thing in the world, a hearth, or the most horrible, a conflagration. And all of a man's happiness or unhappiness is sometimes in that thing scattered by the wind. The smoke Telmark saw was disquieting. It was black, with sudden red flashes, as though the flames from which it came were burning irregularly and had begun to die out, and it was rising above Erbampai. Telmark quickened his pace and walked toward this smoke. He was very tired, but he wanted to find out what it meant. He reached the top of a hill whose side touched the hamlet and the farm. There was no longer a farm or a hamlet. A heap of ruins was burning, and that was Urbampai. There is something more poignant to see burning than a palace, a cottage. A cottage on fire is pitiful. Devastation swooping down on poverty. A vulture pouncing upon an earthworm. In such things there is a kind of incongruity which grips the heart. If the biblical legend is to be believed, 
the sight of a conflagration changes a human being into a statue. For a moment, Telmark was a statue. The spectacle before his eyes held him motionless. That destruction was taking place in silence. Not one cry arose. Not one human sigh was mingled with that smoke. Those flames were working and devouring that village without any sound being heard except the snapping of timbers and the crackling of thatch. Occasionally the smoke parted. The collapsed roofs revealed gaping rooms. The glowing embers showed all their rubies. Scarlet rags and wretched crimson furniture stood out in those vermilion interiors. And Telmark felt the sinister dizziness of disaster. A few trees in a chestnut grove near the houses had caught fire and were blazing. He listened, trying to hear a voice, a call, an outcry. Nothing moved except the flames. All was quiet except the conflagration. Was it because everyone had fled? Where were the people who lived and worked at Erbampai? What had become of that little population? Telmark came down from the hill. There was a funereal enigma before him. He approached it without haste, staring straight ahead. He moved toward that ruin with the slowness of a shadow. He felt like a ghost in that tomb. He reached what had been the gate of the farm and looked into the courtyard, which no longer had any walls and was now merged with the hamlet surrounding it. What he had seen was nothing. He had seen only the terrible. The horrible now appeared to him. In the middle of the courtyard there was a black heap, vaguely outlined on one side by the flames, on the other by the moonlight. This heap was a pile of men. These men were dead. Around this pile was a large pool, which was smoking a little. The fire was reflected in it, but it had no need of fire in order to be red. It was blood. Telmark stepped forward. He began examining those bodies, one after the other. They were all corpses. The moon was shining, and so was the fire. Those corpses had been soldiers. They were all barefoot. Their shoes had been taken from them. Their weapons had also been taken. They still wore their uniforms, which were blue. Here and there, in that mound of limbs and heads, one could see hats that had holes in them and were adorned with tricolored cockades. The men had been Republicans. They had been Parisians who, only the day before, had all been alive and garrisoned at the farm of Erbampai. Those men had been executed, as was shown by the regular pattern in which their bodies had fallen. They had been carefully shot. They were all dead. Not one moan came from the heap. Talmark inspected the corpses without omitting a single one. They were all riddled with bullets. Those who had shot them, probably in a hurry to go elsewhere, had not taken time to bury them. As he was about to go away, Telmark's eyes fell upon a low wall which was in the courtyard, and he saw four feet protruding from behind it. These feet had shoes on them. They were smaller than the others. He bent over them. They were women's feet. Two women were lying side by side behind the wall. They had been shot. Telmark leaned over them. One of them was wearing a kind of uniform, and beside her was a broken, empty canteen. She had been a vivandiere. There were four bullet holes in her head. She was dead. He examined the other woman. She was a peasant. Her face was pale, and her mouth was open. Her eyes were closed. There was no wound on her head. Her clothes, which hardship, no doubt, had reduced to rags, had been partially opened by her fall, and now revealed her half-naked torso. He pushed them completely aside. In her shoulder he saw the round hole made by a bullet. Her clavicle was broken. He looked at her livid breast. A nursing mother, he murmured. He touched her. 
she was not cold. She had no other wounds besides the broken clavicle and the bullet in her shoulder. He put his hand over her heart and felt a faint throb. She was not dead. Telmark straightened up and called out in a terrible voice, "'Isn't there anyone here?' "'Is it you, Kamond?' replied a voice, so low that he could scarcely hear it. And at the same time a head came out of a hole in the ruins. Then another face appeared in another hovel. They were two peasants who had hidden themselves, the only ones who had survived. Telmark's familiar voice had reassured them and made them leave the recesses in which they had been huddling. They walked toward him, still trembling violently. He had been able to shout, but he was unable to speak. Strong emotions are thus. He pointed to the woman lying at his feet. Is she still alive? asked one of the peasants. Telmark nodded. Is the other woman alive? asked the other peasant. Telmark shook his head. All the others are dead, aren't they? said the peasant, who had been the first to show himself. I saw it happen. I was in my cellar. I thanked God I didn't have a family. My house was burning. Dear God, they burned everything. This woman had three children, all of them little. The children screamed, Mother! The mother screamed, My children! They killed the mother and took the children away. I saw that. My God! My God! My God! Those who slaughtered everyone went away. They were satisfied. They killed the mother and took her children. But she's not dead, is she? Tell me, Kamond. Do you think you could save her? Do you want us to help you carry her to your hut?" Telmark nodded. The woods touched the farm. The men made a litter padded with leaves and ferns. They placed the women, still motionless, on the litter, and began walking through the woods, the two peasants carrying the litter, one at the woman's head, the other at her feet, while Telmark held her arms and felt her pulse. The two peasants talked as they walked, and above the bleeding woman, whose pale face was illuminated by the moon, they exchanged frightened exclamations. They killed everyone, and burned everything. Ah, dear God, is that how people are going to be now? It was the tall old man who wanted it done. Yes, he was in command. I didn't see him while the shooting was going on. Was he there? No, he'd left. But it doesn't matter. It was all done by his orders. Then he's the one who did everything. He'd said, kill, burn, no quarter. He's a Marquis. Yes, he's our Marquis. What's his name? Monsieur de Lantenac. Telmark raised his eyes to heaven and murmured softly. If I had only known...